Hi, and welcome to this week's episode of Becoming Multiplanetary. I'm Rich LB, your host for today's episode of Becoming Multiplanetary. We have some special guests with us today, but prior to that, I'd like to offer my co-hosts to introduce themselves. Kage, why don't you introduce yourselves to our listeners? Hi everyone, I'm Kage. I'm one of your co-hosts of Becoming Multiplanetary, and now I will hand over to another one of your co-hosts, Miko. Hey, I'm Miko, the host of Deep Dive Fridays. I'm quite excited to hear from our guests today. Next up, another Space Nut. Hey guys, another Space Nut here. Thanks for joining us today. I'll hand over to our guests. Hello, I'm Xixuan from To The Future with Xixuan and Sebastian. And I'm Sebastian from To The Future. We're glad to be on your show. Thanks for having us. And thank you for coming, guys. Welcome to the show. Would you like to take a couple of minutes here to explain what you do and where our listeners can find you? So basically, To The Future is the name of our YouTube channel. And on our channel, we every week we give updates on the latest space flight news but we also talk about um, general space technologies and also other disruptive technologies. Exactly. So we don't want to only focus on space flight like many space channels do, but our idea was to focus on, on all interesting disruptive technologies because there's just so much happening. With, you know, with Elon's companies, he's not only doing SpaceX and space flight, he's doing Tesla, boring company, Neuralink, and there's just so much amazing stuff going on that we wanted to cover everything which is going on in the world of disruptive technologies so that's our channel basically we started almost i would say two years ago right yes and yeah we do updates on all the most interesting events in space flight and disruptive technologies and we try not to only focus on space that's our this is a space podcast <laughs> this is space podcast but that's our i think uniqueness we're not only a pure space gem. And that can be pretty refreshing to see content that doesn't always follow the trend sometimes, right? So, coming back to a company you mentioned there for a sec, this week's topic is future tech to sustain us on Mars. Let's talk a bit about Neuralink. We've all seen the Three Little Pigs demo, as it was affectionately called, and what kind of applications can we envision this sort of thing having to assist sustaining us on Mars? I think Neuralink could help us in multiple ways and often we are speculating about mental health problems which you could face on Mars, especially in the early stage because you don't probably don't have so many friends, you cannot contact your family every day due to communication delays. So in that regard, Neuralink could really help a lot. For example, you have some virtual reality entertainment probabilities because you have limited activities on Mars. And secondly, if you do have some mental health issues, probably Neuralink would also help to detect them and uh, cure them. Yeah, that's certainly a valid point and a good point. You basically could have something like a holodeck, you know, like from Star Trek. Basically, if you miss Earth a lot, or like green environments, you know, like uh, walking in an Earth environment, I think you, with Neuralink, you could basically have super realistic VR simulations. So I've, almost like the holodecks yeah. in Star Trek. <laughs> they basically have like holodeck simulations, which then make you overcome this longing for Earth. You miss Earth so much, you know, you can have holodeck in your mind, basically, you know, and that might be quite a good idea for overcoming the mental health issues. Pitch in there on the mental health issues that you were touching on. 
it does raise some ethical concerns and I watched a couple of articles returning to how you can flip the happy switch using a Neuralink and then I sort of think if you can just block out negativity will it then technically cure mental health issues and if so where does the new normal lie you know it's like if you can always be happy what's the new one happy of course and you know i believe there was an experiment done in the 80s where one person was given the ability to give themselves a dopamine hit at home and they ended up basically ignoring personal hygiene and family relations and spent entire days constantly activating the pulse train switch to the point that they developed an open sore on their finger from repeatedly adjusting the current. That's the kind of ethics that we're talking about here. Then probably I could imagine you have to sign some kind of waiver or similar documents before you go on such a trip and also take up Neuralink. Yeah, I mean that's an interesting ethical problem here but it's also not sure yet what the capabilities of Neuralink will be. So can it really release or trigger some dopamine? Like what will the capabilities be? Because we know that it can write new information to the brain, so you can create new neural pathways basically. So you can train the brain to think in a certain way, kind of like with a training device, you know? But will it really be able to do all these things? We don't know yet. However, the possibilities are really quite like in some regards a bit scary yeah. though of course every new technology could have some potential wonderful benefits and of course some potential dystopian sci-fi dystopian things you know yeah and this is why they should definitely have an ethics committee in-house to keep track of all these ethical issues that may be raised during the course of Neuralink's development to become an everyday product yeah absolutely so it really it will be really interesting to see what the capabilities of, of Neuralink will be basically and I and hope you mentioned training. I mean it's not only for the mental health reasons but also in general, right? Yeah. Because on Mars you have to do carry out so many science experiments and if something breaks you have to repair and you basically have to be an expert on everything and in that regard Neuralink could also help. Yeah, imagine like in the Matrix, you know, you can learn Kung Fu in five minutes and maybe you can learn how to, I don't know, repair some device in five minutes. How awesome would that be? Yeah, you know, just casually download some exobotany into your head. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that would be quite amazing. So, um, speaking of uh, exobotany, actually, another future tech that would sustain us on Mars, we, it's a tech that exists right now, but with advancements, it could really help us, and that is aquaponics. Yeah, absolutely, and um, Kimball Musk, uh, coincidentally, uh, the brother <laughs> of, of, of Elon Musk, who, you know, the guy that looks like a cowboy with a cowboy hat all the yeah. time, he has like, uh, he's, um, has some startups doing exactly that, right? Yes, I think they already tested this on the ISS and also at Antarctic, Antarctica, I think. So you can really grow a lot of stuff in those hydroponic greenhouses. Yeah. And on Mars, probably you would build those um, greenhouses also underground in order to offer more protection. And you basically only need water with some nutrients and then CO2, which you have plenty of in Mars, on Mars, and then some LED light. Mm -hmm. It's actually really not so difficult, yeah. The design was a sort of vertical farming design, wasn't it? It was like a, a sort of vertical piece of plastic pipe with places for buckets on the side, effectively. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they have some pilot projects going on, like um, um, they're growing food locally in some, some containers, I think, in New York City, for example. And they are growing it locally, so the, you can deliver it to the supermarket immediately because it's right around the corner, which is kind of a nice idea. And it's so funny that Elon already thought of that and his brother is basically already preparing for that kind of, you know, with the hydroponics. Seeing the Kimball Musk company, Square Roots Grow, they're um, doing it in containers and like this one and Sebastian correctly pointed out, they're targeting uh, what they're calling community urban farming. I'm going to link it under this show for any potential listener to uh, look at a little bit more. And that, as, as they correctly pointed out, is Kimball Musk's company and it's already done in something that would be easy to replicate in a vacuum sealed environment. That's really nice because it's another point that space technologies could also be applied here on Earth or vice versa. So Absolutely. that's why always we talk about so many different technologies on our channel because who knows? Yeah, and I mean, you can apply this technology to Mars because basically you have a sheltered habitat or hydroponics module then. Uh, so, of course, it would need to qualify for some more uh, hazardous environment uh, than here on Earth. But the principle is really exactly the same. So that's so nice to see that so many technologies which you have here on Earth can be applied on Mars and vice versa, yeah. So I think in order to help sustain us on Mars, there, there will need to be some advancements made to the technology. And one of the advancements that we've already seen as an example in science fiction, but yet to see, well, at least I haven't seen any in, in real life yet, is the advancement of, instead of using water as a medium, you use effectively a nutrient-rich gelatin and you embed the seed into this gelatin and it grows into the gelatin and you hydrate the gelatin as you would do a substrate. That sounds interesting, yeah. Because when you're using a gelatin, then you don't have to worry if you're in a micro-G environment or a near-zero-G environment because the gelatin will still hold. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. The cohesion is much better and probably there will be some things developed in that direction. It makes a lot of sense, yeah. What do we think of vehicles? Because I know you guys are big EV enthusiasts and big Tesla fans. Do we really envision like a uh, pressurized Cybertruck on Mars or do we think that it's going to need something more custom to the job? So actually we did a Tesla in space video on our channel. Mm, yeah. Unfortunately, I think the video even didn't have so many views. But <laughs> we really liked the video a lot and we talked about uh, the Tesla Cybertruck in the yeah, video yeah. and we I think you previously you had um, uh, also an episode with a lot of uh, SpaceX um, animators and we also examined so many t Tesla Cybertruck renders for Mars in the video mm -hmm. I think that's a really good idea but I think a lot of improvements have to be made right? yeah you, you could not just take the Cybertruck one-to-one -one as it is here in the like presentation uh, or the prototype that we see often in the internet um, and just take it one-to-one -to, -one to one like don't change anything and take it to Mars this wouldn't work so it would certainly need some changes you know you would need yeah, I mean, it has to be pressurized, first of all. So you don't, having normal doors doesn't make a lot of sense, right? 
because like you have an interior pressure of one bar and the exterior pressure is like six millibar on average so like there's an insane pressure difference so having doors in the first place doesn't make a lot of sense you would need some kind of pressure hatch or pressure yeah yeah pressure hatch or something and also i think the tires should be a bit larger because you have huge boulders on mars lying around all the time so i think the cybertruck will end up looking a bit different than the the model we see here but in the end i mean you can use evs on mars i mean you can have batteries and they also work on mars so why not use um, some some form of Cybertruck rovers on Mars, you know, some kind of modified Cybertruck rovers. And just install some full self-driving and off you go. <laughs> yes, it would be easier the full self-driving than here on Earth, right? <laughs> you don't have so many pedestrians. No. No, no traffic lights. No, no traffic lights, no, not, not so many roads also. Or you can just run over somebody, nobody will notice. That's of course also. <laughs> With the full self-driving, the one thing I'm waiting for is uh, troll videos where there's just one person annoyingly standing in the way of a Tesla just to like see how far this Tesla's willing to keep its patience. Yeah, it will certainly happen. I mean, people do all kind of weird stuff on YouTube every time new technology comes out and you had these people also doing like sleeping behind in, in the back seat while the Tesla is driving and so on. All kind of insane stuff already. So it will certainly happen. <laughs> and you mentioned the uh, boring company is one of your, one of the uh, topics you cover on to the future. Have you any thoughts on how that might be applicable to sustaining a long-term presence on Mars? And I think that if you want to have a self-sustaining or self-sufficient colony, we have to like cannot bring water with us, so much water, we have to find water on Mars and there is like a um, lot of underground water, so it would be highly beneficial to use the boring tunnel machines to dig tunnels in order to harvest those underground water, right? Mm, yeah, so there's a lot of frozen water deposits, uh, especially in the northern latitude regions or southern latitude regions, so the further away you go from the equator, basically. But these are all underground. Yeah. So, of course, employing boring machines could be a good idea. And water you need it basically for everything. You can first foremost for drinking and then to grow food, for propellant production, Yeah. yeah. everything. Yeah, and not only water, not only water, but also um, minerals and, and iron ore deposits. So you have kind of like iron ore deposits. So if you want to start really doing in-situ resource utilization on a large industrial scale and want to really start building stuff, then it would be a good idea to have a mining mining system, you know, a working mining, mining system where you have all the ores and stuff that you can get very fast and the boring machines would be ideal for that, basically. I mean, even in the early days, if you think about it, the boring machine could be useful because we know that more than likely, uh, for a permanent settlement, we're going to need to settle in lava tubes. And, you know, if you've got some narrow lava tubes that need widening out in order to make room for the Habs, then, you know, you can use a boring machine for that as well. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. For the lava tubes, they are perfect. Like, you, you can 
bore some smaller tunnels into lava tubes also some branching tunnels yeah. and you can connect lava tubes you can yeah. make basically like and you can pressurize them also like there's also the interesting idea that you make smaller tunnels and if the rock is solid enough so if you have solid rock of course it doesn't work with loose sand <laughs> but if the rock is solid you can you can pressurize compartments of the boring tunnel itself so you don't need to actually build habitat shelters because you instantly would have some kind of yeah habitat you know so you'd make your own pressurized environment within that segment of tunnel effectively yes exactly yeah that's an idea we've seen and it, it's kind of intelligent uh, to, to do this because you save a lot of you know you don't have to put in so many habitat modules and it would save some some material building material and it could also pave the way for multiple Mars cities as well, couldn't it? Because we talk about a million people, these mass colonies. You know, some of these ideas are about uh, separate cities. And, you know, th think about the ability to bore a tunnel out and then put a hyperloop system in there. And you'd have a quick exchange between Martian cities. It would be really great. Then you don't have to drive around, for example, with the cyber trucks there. Yeah. Mm -hmm much slower and then actually it's um, easier to build hyperloops on Mars as compared to Earth. Yeah. Because of the low pressure, atmospheric pressure, you exactly. can reach the high speed so much easier. Yeah, exactly. On Earth you need to evacuate tubes basically and on Mars basically you can just dig a tunnel and there you have your hyperloop. You just need the magnetic levitation and uh, it's so nice because it's also cold probably underground so maybe you can use high temperature superconductors is more easily so you don't need so much energy to power them so they don't consume so much energy and you don't have to evacuate anything so basically you have free hyperloop on mars like super low energy requirement hyperloop so you can connect all the mars colonies with hyperloops very easily boring tunnels and now we just saw the first passing your right, right? This was really nice. Yeah, that was kind of cool. It happened yes, just a few days ago. So apparently Hyperloop is really being developed. Yeah. The data recording is the 12th of November. Uh, I was reading this morning about um, Virgin Hyperloop uh, successfully taking passengers for the first time along a mile test track. Was it a half mile test track maybe? Yes, I think it's um, 500 meters, so a yeah. bit less than half a mile. It's quite short. It's uh, I think the test they have a test track in Nevada somewhere yeah. near Las Vegas, and it's a short track. But still, it's nice to see that they are kind of like working on that technology. But of course, the problem is Elon Musk isn't doing it, so it takes a, longer than if Elon would do it, of course, right? Yeah. <laughs> Elon is at Boca Chica all the time, probably. If, <laughs> he I doesn't think, have time for I that. think if Elon Musk would do Hyperloop, in two years we would have like 100 kilometer long working Hyperloop tunnels connecting cities. That's my opinion. I might be wrong, but yeah. One of the things I was talking about with one of the other co-hosts, we were talking about the long-term goal on Mars and what it should be. And when we go there, it's like, okay, great, create an outpost. Yeah, okay, we've done that. Now what? Well, the more longer term goal would be something like terraforming, you know, uh, trying to create an atmosphere. But then the issue you have is that uh, with all the knowledge that we have at the moment, we think Mars's core is inactive. 
So as such, it wouldn't be creating its own Van Allen belts, which means the atmosphere that you create would just simply be stripped away again by solar winds. So then I thought, okay, well, how do we get around that? And one of the things that came to mind was if we can perfect the tokamak reactors right now that produce fusion technology and then simply turn it into a bomb, you could effectively use that as a, a device to kickstart the core of the planet. And from there, theoretically, you could say that you've become a type one civilization. Wow, that's, that's a fascinating proposition. Um, it would involve some, some quite mega-scale engineering to get the Dynamo of Mars going. I mean, that, like, wow, that is kind of an insane technological uh, <laughs> undertaking, I would say. But I think there's the easier uh, solution to just uh, build a magnet. You mean the approach we talked in our Mars yes. Terraform video? Yes. So, so we talked about, we had actually, um, Terraforming Mars video on our channel where we explore that the different difficulties towards that goal and one was that to create a magnetic field in order first to hold up the atmosphere and secondly to protect our future settlers from radiation and we talked about to place a very strong magnet at the Lagrange, at the Lagrange L1 point, the Mars Sun Lagrange point, right? That was the idea. Yeah. Exactly. So it would be easier than kickstarting like a mega scale engineering project to kickstart the, the, the core of Mars. Somehow it would be much easier to just place a very strong magnet at the L1 Sun Mars Lagrange point. Um, and basically you would deflect the solar wind due to the strong magnetic field. It, it would certainly need to be a few Tesla strong. And then you would deflect the solar wind. So the particles won't reach exactly. the surface. Exactly, they would just float around Mars. They would not hit Mars, so Mars would not lose its atmosphere anymore. And then this would be a lot nicer. You would also reduce the solar radiation flux a lot. Okay, you would still have cosmic radiation, but at least one problem less. Solar radiation would also be gone. So, wow, that would be kind of nice. When do you think this could happen? Uh, that also involves some some kind of um, very strong electromagnets and high temperature superconductors and you need a strong energy source like i think you would need a kind of strong fusion reactor so i don't see that i don't see it happening before we don't have fusion power so if i'm getting you right then placing some kind of uh, i don't know maybe a electromagnetic uh, emission device at the Mars L1 Lagrange point, it would effectively create like a, what's like a doorstop wedge almost in front of the planet, um, which would then push the particles to the side of the planet. So I can see how it works there. Um, the issue is though, what happened, you know, you would need redundancy systems in place on such a thing, because if at any point that failed, that is a big problem for people on Mars. Absolutely, yeah. So it would make sense to have uh, many redundant backup systems or like two, three satellites hovering around this main satellite. So if that one kind of like fails for some reason, you have like instantly some backup satellites or backup taking over. Or you need some like automatically triggered protection on, on the surface if should all the satellites fail suddenly. I mean, for the very unlikely case that every satellite should fail, <laughs> like 
uh, then of course you also would have have to have a warning system in place. That's that's clear. And would such a device be impervious to any solar events such as CMEs? That's also a very valid question. So it needs it would need to be shielded in some way, and yeah. It would come with its own problems, and the question is, of course, uh, how sustainable? How do you get the fuel there? So you need also like to fuel this device with some um, stuff. So it's like deuterium. So if you have a deuterium fusion reactor, you need to bring vast amounts of deuterium there. So um, and you cannot just take a, a magnet like neodymium magnet or something. It's not strong enough. It doesn't create a field sufficiently strong enough. So it really needs to be. Uh, high-temperature superconducting coils of some sort and that you, you have then the problem of course with if you have a very strong coronal mass ejection um, yeah you have to have very good shielded shielded electronic power systems in this satellite for sure I mean any kind of CME coming its way would fry the electronics if it wasn't shielded properly do you think on the way to Mars the um, two moons may be viable to attempt to land on and set some kind of infrastructure up on before we make a Mars shot. So you mean landing on Deimos or Phobos as a stepping stone to Mars? Yeah, exactly. So you could utilize Phobos or Deimos um, to assist the entry into Mars maybe because I know we were discussing myself, Miko and Jetson Guy on Twitter, Benno, um, we're discussing aero braking and what's required to actually enter a Martian atmosphere. Do you think it might be better to shoot for say like Phobos or Deimos first and then make a separate landing attempt? I mean it certainly has the advantage that Deimos and Phobos are so small and light and they have like almost zero gravity like the gravity is so insanely low i don't know how how low it is but not even one percent of, of earth gravity far below one percent of earth gravity probably so they are super light and of course that has some advantages the escape velocity is super like super low and you can basically establish bases on demos and phobos you can explore mars from a nice distance so you can launch missions to the surface kind of like the lunar gateway with the moon that you would have like Timus and Phobos like kind of like Mars gateway or something and then basically launching back to Earth uh, it would also be a lot easier so than starting from the surface power generation on Mars uh, in last week's episode we were talking about Mars Direct 3 and Starship uh, fuel generation needing about uh, I think it was eight cargo ships worth of solar panels. So what do you think will be the power of the future? So as you mentioned, solar panels, we will certainly, certainly need solar panels. You also mentioned that idea in our Tesla in space video. So probably there will, will be even Tesla solar panels. But we will probably need a lot of them because the sun intensity on Mars is of course a lot lower than on Earth. We probably only get 40% efficiency from the solar panels and there are dust storms which could also damage the solar panels or you cannot use them at all or not during the night of course also not. So you need a combination of 
solar panels and alternative and energy supplies sources. For example, I think NASA is um, working on the nuclear thermal power generator. Yeah, the, the, the kilopower, they are working on those um, nuclear, like those uh, radiothermal isotope generators and they basically use the heat of, of radioactive decay um, to create electricity via the um, thermoelectric effect and basically they have some preliminary small test reactors already which can produce I think already a few kilowatts if I'm not mistaken a few kilowatts of power and they're targeting 10 kilowatts so they have this kilo power experiment going on they are targeting 10 kilowatts per um, thermoelectric generator so if you have 10 20 of those per base or like depends of course how large the base is it make a lot of sense to have a mix of solar and those right radioisotope generators and on top batteries to store exactly the energy. yes you would also need battery storage uh, to accommodate for the fluctuating day-night cycle and, and dust storms potentially where you cannot use the solar rays and so on. So yeah, you would certainly need a combination of many different like solar batteries, radiothermal generators, and maybe in the further future, of course, then fusion at some point, hopefully. I watched the same presentation you guys were referring to regarding the uh, generators and the gentleman responsible for that said, if you need more than five, then you're ready to produce your own power on Mars. That sounds very optimistic. <laughs> mm -hmm. So more than five would be sufficient to... to. He said at that point it would be inefficient to continue adding more and you would be at the stage of progression to be able to produce your own power on Mars. That's okay, that's interesting, yeah. I didn't know that. Um, I was always under the impression that, um, of course, like, in order to kickstart your base, so if you land, I, I always thought like having solar panels and, and thermoelectric generators at the same time would make most sense. But if you say that five such generators... That's for the uh, biggest one they were looking at. They were looking at the 10 kilo generator. And so it made a total of 50 kilos. And I said, if, if you needed more than that, then you were ready to produce it on Mars. Fascinating. That, that sounds quite nice then, yeah, because they are not so heavy as far as I know. So maybe even one starship could transport five of those because 100 metric tons to the surface of Mars. Certainly enough to take five of those along with you, probably with additional solar panels and batteries. So. And boring tunnel machines. <laughs> and maybe also boring tunnel machines. So yeah, it sounds very achievable in my opinion, right? It's achievable. It's, I mean, the plan is to sustain a long-term presence there. We do need to think about things like producing power there, you know, a regular supply of water and the other necessities that one would need to survive on, on the Red Planet. Yeah, absolutely. And Elon, of course, with his overly optimistic and aggressive timeframes, wants like one million people to live on Mars by 2050. So we certainly would need some <laughs> some large-scale yeah, operations. Yes, Do you absolutely. have some sort of favorite habitat? Uh, NASA has been arranging quite a lot of competitions and 3D printed habitats. I think one of our favorites was also um, 
the one who won, I think, the habitat design competition from NASA. I think it's called Marsha, right? Mm -hmm. the, yeah. From AI Space Factory. Yeah, yeah. Another one was, and now they had another competition from the Mars Society with the Mars City design, and they, it's called Nexus Aurora. Uh, Aurora. Mm -hmm. My pronunciation is bad. Please forgive me. And I think both of them, they, of course, they want to 3D print the habitats and they are both based on some basalt fiber reinforced plastics because mm -hmm. you can get this basalt already from the Martian regulars. That is really helpful, right? Yeah, that's I like. It makes a lot of sense to 3D print like uh, habitats from the Martian regolith. That mm -hmm. that would be ideal, of course. And I forgot if that would also protect, offer some protection. Not at all. Depends how thick it is. So if you kind of like shield your base with a one meter thick uh, 3D printed regolith dome structure, which is kind of solid enough, uh, and the gravity on Mars is not so high, so probably you can build quite impressive domes, 3D printed regolith domes, then it would be probably enough. But yeah, the AI Space Factory one, the Marsha, yeah. I think we like it very much. It's also like uh, overground, so you don't have to live all the time in the dark lava tube with good for yeah. mental health. Yeah, certainly. It would be nice to see the sun from time to time. I mean, we always say like, okay, it makes sense to build underground to protect against radiation. But seeing the sun is also quite nice uh, for, I mean, I like seeing the sun uh, very often. So, <laughs> so I couldn't really imagine. We don't know how often you guys see the sun, but here in Germany, in Munich, we almost never see the sun. Yeah, actually, okay, Munich is a bad comparison because it's always like, almost like living in an underground lava tube on Mars. <laughs> <laughs> the same here in Finland. So, one of the things that's really important to ask about becoming multiplanetary is what is the ultimate mission that we get out of this? There's a lot of talk about yeah, we should go to Mars, and then we should get back from Mars, and we need to make sure that humans are safe in the process. There's not a whole lot of focus on what happens in between there. Once we're on the planet, what is the true mission? If you look at, uh, for example, all the rovers that have been sent, they have a mission, they have a purpose, they are searching for particular things, a, they have a goal that they accomplish. And so my question to you would be, what do you see as our purpose, our goal, that would not only make it a reason to go to Mars, but to stay on Mars for a long period of time and continue to send people there over and over and over again? That's an excellent question. Um, I mean, Elon often says that uh, spreading consciousness to the planets and moons of the solar system would be a very good idea because for all we know, we are the only, only sentient beings certainly in the solar system, but probably in a very large radius around the sun of quite a few light years, probably. So it probably makes sense to spread consciousness uh, to the planets and moons of the solar system, because this is something humanity has always done. You know, we started in Africa a few million years ago, and then we spread to all the different continents. And that certainly was a dangerous and perilous road and certainly back then we spread out to the other country for just for general exploration purposes right yeah i mean they didn't have any higher goal in mind it's just like okay 
looks nice there. Let's go there. Let's, also for resources. Let's find new space to live, you know. Let's um, build new um, homes somewhere, have like a new land to live in. And that's like basically what humans do. So we spread to new habitats. So on Earth, we did it for millions of years. And now, like the last great habitat, new habitat was basically the Americas. So 600 years ago, 700 years ago, the Native American population was like how many, like not many, a few million people lived there. And like after Christopher Columbus sailed there, why did he sail there? You know, like it was kind of exploration, certainly, but it was also this drive to like settle new territory and like, right, discover new things. And then kind of like this is in our genes somehow. And I think this is also like um, what we humans do. And it's like also, of course, um, makes it less likely that we die out on Earth, right? I mean, there are several potential catastrophes that could happen on Earth. So it certainly makes sense not to live only on Earth. Yeah, I mean, the current pandemic is a good example. We could have some more dangerous virus or, yeah. or asteroids hit Earth, volcano breaks out. Yeah, super volcano, gamma ray bursts. I mean, there are many scenarios which could just wipe us out if we are stuck on only one planet. So I think being stuck on one planet is dangerous. Like the extinction, the extinction probability, if we only continue to live on Earth for a long time is like almost 100%. But if we live on the Moon, on Mars and some other places in the solar system, it drops down to like almost 0%. That's a really interesting point about the longevity of our species and extending that to becoming multiplanetary. But what about how we make that to, into something that's sustainable. So when you look at, for example, sending humans to Mars, there is the, the, the good of all kind of argument that can be made out of that of, yeah, we should do this because it improves our, um, our ability to continue in the event of a possible crisis. But then also when you look at our own planet, we have climate change as a real threat looming over our heads and that still hasn't inspired people to to really put the serious focus on it that really needs to be applied to it. So how can we change that mindset so that we, maybe not only in a climate change format, but also how can we change that mindset so that we can get people to understand and really buy into the need of extending humanity beyond just Earth. So I think, first of all, people need to understand that space exploration has some real benefits. I think the problem is many people don't really understand the immediate benefits, technological benefits of space exploration and what it does to our daily life. So we use so many devices which were invented in the days or come directly as a result from the days of the Apollo program. And if we imagine how many insanely amazing offshoot technologies we could have from colonizing Mars. I mean, that's just crazy. And I think people nowadays, we often hear the argument like, ah, why should we, why should we live on the moon and Mars if we have so many problems here on Earth, you know? I think it's also very important how the first uh, crewed uh, missions to the moon or later to Mars, how they go, because 
I think back then we we talked about how the Europeans discovered America. I think most of people were also super afraid to travel overseas. But once the first missions succeeded and they saw all the resources, the new resources and all the new homes they built, then suddenly everyone wanted to go to America. Yeah. And it will be the same with, Mo with the Moon and with Mars. I think the first missions are of course very crucial and the first basis. And once they set up and they set up and are running and then you, it's more, then it's more easily to convince people. I yeah, think. yeah. And, and really people need to understand how, um, uh, what the benefits are, because really people think it's wasted uh, money and wasted time to invest in space and to explore space and to live on Mars, if we have so many problems here on Earth. And I think this changing of the mindset can only come with time and if people realize the benefits which space exploration also gives here on Earth. because. Uh, our our story so far of humanity as a successful spacefaring civilization is pretty laughable right now. So we have the year 2020, we went to the moon a few times, and that's it, like 50 years ago. So that's kind of pathetic, in my opinion. So it's like our track record is not very impressive, <laughs> in, in my opinion. That's why many people don't understand it, that even those few flights to the moon gave us quite some amazing technologies. Now imagine what would happen if we would build huge colonies on Mars, huge cities on Mars, for many years, this would be a factor thousand more than the Apollo flights. It would be insane what, what uh, effect this would have on life on Earth, not only technologically, but also culturally. And probably have to like improve school education all around the world, right? So yeah, that kids are taught such stuff at school. Yeah, because of if you're an, an adult, it's more difficult to change your mind. Yeah, I mean, uh, at school, you're not being taught that space exploration is good or makes sense. It's like it's not being taught, not at all. But this is because we haven't yet um, had a very long track record of successful space flight. We are just uh, flying to low Earth orbit, have a funny space station in 400 kilometers height, and that's it right now. It's not very exciting, probably. Exactly. Yeah. It's not exciting at all. So imagine having a colony on Mars, or cities on Mars, for many years. That would be totally insanely different. And people will, like, I think mindset will change dramatically. That's an excellent point about the ancillary benefits that come out of space exploration. There, there are some common ones that uh, people know about, like mylar blankets or the uh, the space blankets that are used for um, if, if somebody is hypothermic. Uh, also memory foam mattresses, that's a commonly known one. But there are even things that uh, people might not be aware of, like for example the CMOS sensors within uh, DSLR cameras and mobile phones. That largely came about because it wasn't a NASA invention, but it was very much driven by NASA and the need to have digital camera technology rather than having film technology. And that largely came about uh, from the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in I think the late 80s and early 90s, somewhere around there. So there's there are a lot of benefits that come out of uh, space exploration that we they solve problems that we don't even yet know that we might have. So there's another thing that I wanted to touch upon and that's you mentioned about 
being, or rather, it, it was mentioned that uh, we would need to have longevity on Mars. And once we're on Mars for a long period of time, what kind of political ramifications could you see that come out of that? Would there be a independent nation that could found, that could be founded out of the people who stay on Mars? Or how would you see that developing? So we speculated a lot on that topic actually in one of our latest videos. Mm -hmm. We made a joke that Elon would become the president of Mars, but <laughs> that was of course a joke more or less. Yeah, but who knows? I mean... Yeah, <laughs> who knows? I mean, Elon, Elon himself, he mentioned that it would be a direct, a swipe number, direct that democracy would be something more realistic on Mars. Yes, Elon often says that Mars should be a direct democracy, which of course makes sense, but it would be technologically, of course, because the environment on Mars is purely technological. So on Earth, it's like technology, we use it often, it's there, but we don't really need it. You can build a shack in the woods somewhere and have a nice life with low tech environment. But on Mars, you cannot do that. Everything is super high tech. So I think that democracy, how it would work there would be some kind of like um, decentralized kind of like, I'm just speculating here, but I think it would be a direct democracy kind of like um, maybe connected to some AI um, AI network, which kind of like uh, acts as some kind of advisory in some kind of advisory fashion. So that's like, because we cannot stop the rise of AI. Elon often says like AI will come and that's why he develops Neuralink in the first place. So in my view, I think we'll have some kind of direct democracy where the people can directly vote some for some kind of council like some form of some mars governing council and i think ai will play a big role i think that's my opinion i might be wrong what do you think but how exactly would that ai work or i'm seeing it as a kind of bene benevolent ai governing um, entity basically so if we really merge with AI, if we, if we like Elon creates Neuralink so that we merge with AI. Would that be a, like a general artificial intelligence, you mean something like that? Yes, basically some kind of general artificial intelligence where the people have kind of connected to it, maybe with Neuralink in some form. But in the more near future? <laughs> in the more near future, probably it will just be a direct democracy and we just elect uh, council members which then you know um, do the more immediate tasks but everyone is elected directly probably as, as some kind of direct democracy but long term long term i really see mars because it's so highly technologically developed i see it evolving to some form of ai merged kind of new form of government i mean when we made video we also speculated about that because humans always I mean, humans cannot make the perfect decisions. Yeah. Humans, yeah, humans, um, humans mess up. Humans have corruption. Humans like um, there is no perfect. Uh, even democracies, the best democracies in the world, they always have corruption. There's always some stuff going wrong. So with, I, with blockchain technology or stuff like you can at least probably exactly. ensure a higher level of transparency of the exactly. election process. Exactly, you can use blockchain technology 
the decentralized ledger of the blockchain to make 100% fail-safe voting, which maybe the Americans could have used also these days, you know? <laughs> so it would be like um, kind of interesting to have that on Mars, like super highly technologically developed direct democracy. That is a pretty interesting point. Although there, there is also some argument to be made about the, the human touch that goes into things where um, I, I, I actually personally uh, work a lot with data scientists and there's a lot of, there, there can be a lot of failures when it comes to machine learning and a lot of intuition that you can only really get out of a human touch. So maybe even a hybrid of something there with AI and uh, a human oversight to it. But I want to circle back to one other thing about the government potentials for or, 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 uh, self-governing potentials in a Mars society that I'm sure most of us and our uh, listeners have even seen uh, The Expanse, great TV show if you haven't seen it. It touches on a really interesting point about how, for the longest time, the Mars society there was beholden to Earth because we are dependent on them for resources. Uh, uh, resources, and they ended up getting to a point where they had enough resource independence, and they felt that they could actually become politically independent too. Do you think we'll ever get to that point in a Mars society where they could have their own kind of resource independence that would also grant them political and self-governing independence? So we absolutely believe so, because I think already in the International Space Treaty it was actually stated that space and other planets and celestial bodies, they are all like independent or common properties of all nations, so no nation could actually claim anything in Mars in theory or should. And we talked a lot about different technologies already today that at some point Mars can become self-sufficient. It's not forever Earth-dependent, it's absolutely realistic. Yeah, I think so. If sufficient time passes, it's destined to happen. There's, I think there's no way around it. Because if a colony grows larger and larger and becomes self-sufficient, and on Mars you basically have all the necessary ingredients for self-sufficiency. So you have water, the oxygen, you can produce your own fuel, you have all the uh, ores, like metal ores. Uh, yeah, you can build your own spaceships, your own industry. Um, you have everything you need on Mars. So if the technological level becomes sufficiently advanced, then the the colonies will be so advanced at some point that they can become independent. They, they don't need Earth anymore for resources, and I think it's it's destined to happen. The notion of uh, countries will be very interesting, right? Uh, I mean, we have to have different countries on Earth, where there will only be one country on Mars, probably at the beginning, yes. And later on, if you have so many different colonies, what will, will then happen? That is a very interesting uh, that's very interesting and uh, yeah, what will happen? Will you have one Mars government or will there be like, um, I don't know, uh, several different governments because the colonies might be very far apart, you know? I don't know. It's very interesting. That is very interesting indeed. And I just hope that unlike in the Expanse, 
it doesn't end up in a war between worlds, but in fact a collaboration between the worlds, and that we both work together regardless of where they come to be in a political or self-governing sense, work together to better humanity for both planets and for all planets where we become multiplanetary. Hi guys, and that's all we have time for on this week's episode of Becoming Multiplanetary. Thanks for joining us this week, and we hope you enjoyed the episode. And a big thank you to our guests, Jishuan and Sebastian, for joining us this week from To The Future. Be sure to check out their content on their YouTube channel. And I'm going to pass to my other co-hosts so they can say their goodbyes as well. Kage, do you want to say goodbyes? Thank you, and as he mentioned, I'm Kage. I'm your co-host for Becoming Multiplanetary. Thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And I will now pass over to my other co-host, Miko. I've been Miko, the host of Deep Dive Fridays. And thanks for listening. And I'll pass over to another Space Nut. Thanks for listening, guys. Remember to follow us on Twitter for part two of this. And a big thank you to our guests today. Um, feel free to stick around and engage anytime over here at Total Space. Uh, thanks a lot for having us today and we are really looking forward to coming back and the best place you could find us as mentioned is our youtube channel to the future mm-hmm. written like the number two and the future and that's our main platform basically and twitter or something yes you can also find us on twitter under the same name to the future and yes exactly and thank you so much for having us on your podcast we enjoyed it a lot it was awesome and and we wish you a lot of success absolutely